The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 21st, the If You Like Pina Coladas edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm the editorial director of Slate Podcast, and I'm the father of Leo, who is four years old, and Eliza, who is eight. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, my stepdaughter Lily, who is 18, and my son Teddy, who is 16. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 13, and Ezra, who is 15. Today on our show, we're going to be joined by longtime friend of Mom and Dad are Fighting, Catherine Goldstein. She's going to talk about her new podcast, The Double Shift. As always, we're going to share triumphs and fails. We're going to make recommendations on Slate Plus. We're going to be talking about the hills that you would be willing or not willing to die on to uphold your principles as a parent. Uh, Let's start with triumphs and fails. Carvel, you want to go first, triumph or a fail? Yeah, I'm going to go with a triumph today, which is that uh, Georgia, we were driving to school this morning, and Georgia started telling me this story about this thing that happened to her in class. And the story was that they were in their history class, and they were talking about slave rebellions. They were talking about Nat Turner, and then the teacher decided to introduce this sort of mock debate where you had to debate whether or not Nat Turner was a freedom fighter or a crazy person, and uh, which I thought was really interesting. This has to do with the fact that he, in addition to, like, the slave rebellion had a lot of crazy stuff going on, including the murder of a baby. Um, and uh, and so the kids had a lot of feelings about that. So everyone was like, well, I mean, you, you have to fight for freedom, but you have to do it in this particular way, and you don't want to make the white people mad, and you don't want to... And George's class is, I'd say maybe about half white, half children of color. I think her school's like quarter black and mixed and then there's white kids. And I think it's kind of a, it's a pretty fairly diverse classroom. So they were having this debate, but Georgia said that she was listening to everyone and and was like realizing, wow, these kids all think that the way to get freedom in life is to appeal to the people that are oppressing you. And I really don't think that. So she started (laughs) raising her hand and expressing this viewpoint like, look, I mean, I understand Nat Turner like was extreme, but like he was envisioning a freedom, like a full freedom, not like a freedom where you get freedom from your oppressor by like making them feel bad about what they're doing or by appealing to their sense of morality. She was like explaining this. Is, these are the words she was using in the car. She was like, obviously, if they're enslaving you, like you can't appeal to their morality. They already don't have the morality you need for you to be free. So you and she was explaining all this. And I was like, wow, Georgia is woke as fuck. Like, what the hell? And she said. <laughs> And like she said that she was the only person and everyone in class was like, no, that's crazy. And she was like holding down this position all alone, like by herself in her classroom. And then at at the end of it, I was like, wow, that's so crazy. And she and then on the way to school, this feels like that thing on Twitter where where people faked that their kids said profound things, but they didn't really say it. But I swear to God, we're pulling up to the school and she said, Dad, I'm just I'm just realizing how deeply this system is, like how deeply this system works and how it's just like every every generation like kids have to all over again learn that they like that it's the whole system that's messed up it's not individuals it's the whole thing and i was like wow like have fun in, in eighth grade don't forget your cookie like or whatever you know what i mean like it was just she was so like woke and i was like did i don't i mean i feel like this is all stuff that i've said but i didn't think they were paying attention and so i just was like wow georgia like it just had this moment where i was like okay here's this kid 
who's 13 years old and is already beginning to like understand these larger ineffable concepts about systemic oppression. Like what is she going to do in the world when she gains more agency and power, understanding education? I'm like, I'm psyched for it. So I just wanted to like give her a shout out because she seems to be well on the path towards something meaningful. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, it's, and like, this is, Ezra and I have this argument, he's the other, like, Ezra, I'm like more, Ezra's like more conservative than I am, which drives me freaking crazy, which is what we've been arguing about historically, but I've decided to just like stop <laughs> arguing with my son. So it's really weird to have one child who's like ready for the revolution and one child is like, basically like, I mean, he's like, he's more on, I mean, he's just put, he's, he's a lot more critically thinking about everything. And he's like, is, is this stuff really right? Or do people have a point when they say these terrible things? And I'm just like, he, he likes to break down the, like, he likes to explore everything. He's in that teenage phase where he thinks that there's an intellectual value to like playing devil's advocate. And I'm like, dude, stop. But I get so mad at him. And then, but then Georgia is like just on the other side of the stuff. Like she's been listening to everything I'm saying and taking it on. So it's like, again, this goes back to, to like parenting counts, but it's not the kids come already programmed to do stuff that they're going to do. <laughs> and like what you do to like impact who they are only has a certain percentage of impact. Like they're already, they already have a whole set of instructions that they come to the, to the life with. And you just get to like try and influence. So well, so this goes know, back. Been, this goes great. back to something that what you're saying about Ezra goes back to something that you and I have disagreed with about this show on the past, which is mm. whether or not you should always be sincere in the views that you represent to your kids, or whether you should sometimes <laughs> triangulate against their need to rebel against you with tactical insincerity. If you were to present <laughs> to Ezra a point of view that you would not yourself uphold you might be liable to sort of bounce him into a position that you would be very happy for him to hold. <laughs> I mean, this is I understand bananas. your logic about that. No, I no, I understand what you're saying. If I he's going to rebel just, against whatever you say, you got to work with that. <laughs> I, see, I, I think there's something else going I mean, on here, though, because this is something I see in my own kids is they have yeah. their own like b core beliefs. Like, this is what I believe in politically. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. They also have this um, knee-jerk like interest in inclusivity because inclusivity is such a big part of the language around like mm. kids' culture right now. And what mm -hmm. you know and the thing that even henry who's super politically engaged and like read that atlantic article about the nfl and colin kaepernick this week and had like some super interesting very like woke mm -hmm. insights and sort of the power structure there even he will say it is valuable to not just exclude people with different points of view from your life because otherwise like how will you know sort of what's out there you know so mm -hmm. you know he he and a friend got into a debate about like whether or not you know everybody who votes for, for Trump is just stupid. Like that was like the whole thing. And Henry is like, if you say that, then what you're doing is like, you're not actually listening to the things. Like if, if you want the opportunity to argue and you want the opportunity to debate and you want the opportunity to make change, you actually have to sort of understand the underpinnings of like the thought. So his idea is just like to be a little bit more inclusive and like listen. Right. And it right. we've had debates around certain things around that too. But I do think there's something about like the cultural stuff that kids are getting that they are thinking about like ideology and like when like ways of thinking as part of their inclusivity. Like they just don't want to blanket right off 50% of the people right. in the, their world. And this actually goes, 
I mean, this actually goes back, and I think it's different for every kid because those aren't fifty percent of the people in Ezra's world. But right, but right. I, but this goes back to to like this is actually the core of my argument against Gabe's like strategic triangulation approach, which makes sense <laughs> on surface. But I actually think that what's really happening with Ezra is that it isn't that he it isn't really necessarily about inclusivity. It's that kids right now are sorting out multiple layers of complexity around identity, what's right, what's wrong, left, right. Like they're handling they're handling a, a larger, more weighty, I think, collection of political ideas than we were handling at this point Hmm. when I was 15. I mean, I feel like it. I feel like when I was 15, we were handling fairly straightforward ideas like this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. And I think kids right now are handling just more complicated stuff because they're seeing like the hypocrisy. They're seeing late stage capitalism like being blown out in all these different ways. They're just seeing all this stuff. And so they're just having to do more. And I think Ezra being like a nuanced, intelligent thinker is struggling with that doing of more. And I think that he's getting he's getting. Um, and plus the internet re- really is the main thing that they have that we didn't have, which means that all these dumbass points of view are coming towards them in ways that seem reasonable to a 15-year-old mind. So I think what Ezra is, is experiencing is he's got ideas coming to him. They seem to make sense. He knows other people believe them. He needs proof that they're not true because they kind of make sense. So he comes to me and says, Dad, what do you think about this? And I'm like, that's fucking bullshit. Blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, well, Dad, now, now, now you're just ridiculous. You're just an old man with you. And I go, sign blah, blah, And then we have this fight. <laughs> and But then I find him arguing those same points of view to his friends, the ones that I argue to him. Because that's part of the way he processes stuff is by arguing, which I hate. But I get it now that that's how he learns things. He, he he presents an idea to you and then you a terrible idea and then you challenge him and then he argues it back against you, which forces you to really explain why you think it's wrong and helps him understand the nuance of it. And then I catch him explaining those ideas to friends of his exactly the way I explain them to him. And so I think mm. that that's why it's important for me to just be direct and honest with him about what I believe. Just like that's what it is. He comes to me as a sounding board. To find out what I believe. I don't my job isn't really actually to influence what he thinks. It's to be a force in his life that he will combine with the other forces in his life and draw his own conclusions on. And I have to hold down my end of the thing is the way I look at it. All hmm. right, fair enough. You make a you, you <laughs> Boom. Make, you make Mic a, drop. you make a good case. I'll, I'll admit <laughs> that you make a good case then. Um Rebecca, you wanna go? Triumph or fail. Yeah, mine is so stupid uh, compared to everything we just talked about. Okay, good, because mine is uh, too. We're, we're entering now the right, stupid good. portion of the program. <laughs> you got to downshift. Good, yeah. and yeah. I, am, uh, I am going to attribute this fail not to myself, but to the lovely administrators at my local high school where I send my children that I like very much as people and believe that they are coming from a good place. However, Uh-oh. I don't think that telling... <laughs> <laughs> the senior class that they can't perform the Pina Colada song in the mashup in their Battle of the Bands competition next week because of its themes around alcohol and sex was a good decision on their part. <laughs> and I was not asked my opinion, but if I had been, I am prepared to make the case as to why that was just a super dumb call, especially when the kids have been practicing the Pina Colada song for a month and it sounds super good. Anyway, that's my fail. My son is not going to be able to play in the Pina Colada song during the Battle of the Bands mashup during Winter Carnival next week, and it's disappointment all around. And I think it was a bad call. That's I, the fail. 
I just want to say the Pina Colada song is a super weird choice for teenagers. It's, well, that's I like a song, it. I mean, that's, that's a song about like the, the, the loneliness and the dissolution of love within a marriage that goes on for no, a long time. It's about the time. hope of it, reconnecting when you realize you both like Pina Coladas. Ends with cheese. a bizarre twist. It's like an O. Henry story <laughs> about the death of passion within a marriage. And, and, and that's what right. your guys are going to be doing in their Battle of the Bands. Although I guess they're I, not because it's also... They're not. Uh, slightly raunchy by the way maybe it's not, that was I mean, first of maybe all that was where the school was coming from they were just this is they weird. did this offer is inappropriate culturally biz- yes. thematically bizarre for children at right. this age they did do a lyric rewrite i think they made suggestions like how about if we did if you like eaten frittatas and abstinence at midnight and that was no no go so there was a, a bunch of attempts to compromise and i was very excited about those attempts to compromise but the the song they are being allowed to do as a substitute is Dancing in the Moonlight, which is 100% about sex. Tell me it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's about dancing. It's yeah. About, it's, about, it's about dancing al fresco so at nighttime. So dancing in the dark. No, nocturnal <laughs> al fresco dancing. <laughs> okay, okay. Anyway. That's the that's theme the of that number. Dance- Super dumb. <laughs> I have a question. Are all the people in your kid's senior class 75 years old? Because we've got it's people administering. You mean we've the got, administrators? No, but are like, they 75 years old? No, I'm talking about the people that are choosing these songs. What the hell is going on? Oh. How old are these children? You've oh, got people I mean, they're, doing they're really, songs from the 80s. Yeah. You've got people delivering yeah. like parking tickets. Like what? What what is yeah. this weird world you live where everyone is Benjamin buttoning themselves? I don't explain. <laughs> I think a lot of the pop culture, like musical references, are coming from um, movies that have been released in the last couple of years, where a lot of these like vintage songs have appeared. Right. Like, um, uh, what's that? A uh, Chris uh, Pratt movie, uh, the you know the space one, where he's like a space pirate. That one, where they have like the mixtapes. Good stuff. That movie, Baby Driver, has a ton of like vintage '70s and '80s tunes in it. Like a lot of go. movies now in pop culture that are like featuring these songs. So they've like made it onto the Spotify playlists of a lot of young people, and they've made it into like a lot of like uh, like beat remixes recently. Like this is a genre of like you know Uncle Rock sort of like coming back. Uncle Rock <laughs> into into the pop culture mainstream. There's actually another place the kids are learning old songs because Ezra continues to blow me away with like his knowledge of music that I thought there's no way he would have found the song. And George is now starting to do that too. The other place the kids are getting it is Grand Theft Auto. GTA Mm. is secretly an entire musical history is embedded because you can choose radio stations within the game. And those radio stations are curated and they're serious and they're, they're like thousand song playlists. And so, yeah. ki- and you can choose like 80s rock, 90s rock, like yacht rock, like hip hop, like 70s R&B, like not your 50s. And, and so kids these days like are learning all this musical history that they, that I, just continues to blow my mind. Like, and, That's right. And I'm like, I, I'd say probably once a week Ezra like mentions a song and I'm like, how do you know that? And he's like, oh, GTA. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> What is going on? All right, it's Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> that was the movie title that eluded me before. It's not the Space Pratt movie. It's called Guardians of the Galaxy. Anyway, that's where a lot of Very this stuff has come direction. from, I think. From now on, to me, <laughs> it will always be Space Pratt. Um, <laughs> my my fail this this uh, this week. We went, you know, it was a long weekend, so uh, we went away. We went to to uh, we rented a house with some friends, and and we have these friends who we know from the kids' school and the parents are our friends and the kids age matches up with our kids age and it all just fits together very nicely and so we all went away for the weekend and it was great um but before we were going 
Leo was a little anxious about like, where are we going? What's the house going to be like? I don't want to leave. I want to stay in my house. You know, he can be a little anxious about change. Um, and I made sure to tell him, you know, you can bring some books and you can bring some toys and you can bring two stuffies. The thing about Leo right now, he loves stuffies. His bed is covered in stuffies. He has superhero stuffies, which are his favorites. He has uh, Black Panther and Iron Man and Superman uh, and The Flash. But then he also has like animal stuffies. He's just, he's a very soft hearted boy and I love him so much and he loves his stuffies. And um, I said to him, you can bring two stuffies of your choice and they can come with us and they'll be there in the bed with you. And he was like, okay. And the stuffies were like a big part of what made it okay to go to this unfamiliar place and sleep in an unfamiliar bed. And I said that I did great at like reassuring him that he would be able to bring his stuffies. Did I do the second part of that move where you actually make sure that he does in fact choose and then bring the stuffies? I didn't do that <laughs> second part. So I got halfway there. Um, and then, you know, we got there and he's unpacking and we're in his room and like, he's looking around and he's like, where's my stuffies? And uh, I'm really sorry, dude, we didn't, we didn't bring any of your stuffies. The good thing it's was- It's Pantsgate all over again. <laughs> <laughs> Pants, Pantsgate Jr. Um, the good thing was by that time, like it was not so scary and he was excited to see his friend from school and the two of them shared a bed, which was super cute. And his friend had brought two stuffies and he let Leo borrow one of his stuffies. So Leo snuggled up with the friends like hippo stuffy and that was an acceptable substitute for his own stuffy and, and everything was perfectly fine. But I have to say, I did not cover myself in glory on the on the stuffies uh, preparation move. That's my fail. Wow, you did all right. You know what this? And, and in some ways, you may have helped him recognize the transient nature of one's relationship with stuffies. You taught him a valuable lesson. I, I think this is, in, in some ways, an accidental triumph. Right. I mean, it's that good thing where any trauma that doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? So it, <laughs> it, it, it's it's good to impose very, very small traumas on children so that they can then see that they're strong <laughs> enough to cope with those traumas. But then you got to be very careful because if it's too big of a trauma, then that's bad. You definitely don't want to do that. So um, constantly titrating. Yeah, got, got to calibrate the amount of trauma that you impose on your children. That's the moral here. Seems fair. Selective trauma. Exactly. I actually, I actually weirdly sort of agree with that. <laughs> I do think it's true. You, you, can't, you, you can't entirely protect your kid from anything bad happening that they're going to have bad feelings about. But you do want to protect them from the really bad stuff because that stuff's bad. <laughs> It's like giving babies a tiny bit of peanut to prevent peanut allergies or something, right? It, it's like that, but with emotional <laughs> peanuts. Okay, got it, got it. Before we move on, let's do the business. Slate is launching a brand new newsletter for all of our parenting stuff. If you want to find out about the latest care and feeding advice columns, if you want to find out about the Ask a Teacher column, if you want to read about my parents' work-life balance, if you want to find out when the latest episode of this podcast is dropping, sign up today. Go to slate.com slash parenting email. That's slate.com slash parenting email. Uh, and all that stuff will be delivered straight to your inbox. If you have a question that you would like us to tackle on this show, you can leave us a voicemail message by calling 424-255-7833, or you can send us an email, momanddad at slate.com. Also, if you're not yet a member of our Facebook group, what are you waiting for? 
go on Facebook, search for Slate Parenting, uh, and mash that join button, as the kids say. It's a really fun community. There's a lot of great discussion. We moderate it. If there's an asshole, we kick them out. Every now and again, I get to kick out an asshole. It's super fun. You will not be a moderator. You won't get to kick out the assholes, but you do get the benefit of an asshole-free community. Uh, Freedom from assholes, not guaranteed. On Slate Plus today, uh, we're going to be following up on Rebecca's fail. We're going to be talking about what kinds of high school clampdowns and freedom of speech censorships and curtailments uh, we as parents have decided to stand four square against. What's the hill you want to die on as far as your teenager's right to self-expression goes? If you want to hear that segment, if you want to hear us talk about something else goofy like that every single week at the end of this program, you should be a member of Slate Plus. It's just $35 for your first year. You get extended ad-free episodes of Mom and Dad Are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows Every single time. Plus, you help support us. Uh, you help us keep making these shows. You get a bunch of other great benefits, too. If you want to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, the address to go to is slate.com slash momanddadplus. And join Slate Plus today. Once again, that's slate.com slash momanddadplus. Do it. Okay, on with the show. Last week, we got a letter from a mom who was wondering how to tell her daughter that the daughter's father is not her biological father. Uh, And we had a good discussion, what I thought was a good discussion of of, uh, that letter. Uh, And then we got a really interesting email in response to that discussion uh, that we wanted to read for you. Carvel's going to read it now. Yeah, uh, this letter touched me and uh, and I wanted to share it. uh, this is from Kylie, and it reads, not sure if you can do this, but is there any chance you could share this with the recent letter writer who was asking about how to address her daughter's paternity? This recent letter is my story. My parents started dating when I was one, got married when I was two and a half. I don't know who my bio dad is, and I never had, and I'm 33 now. My parents told me when I was about 11. An important thing to note and why I sent the letter is that, that I always knew. My earliest memory is of my adopted father building a table on my second birthday and as someone I loved very much who came from outside the home to visit. I spent years and years knowing this secret, a secret that it felt very painful because it feels like a horrible betrayal to be five and doubt that the man who tucks you in at night is your father. When my parents did reveal the truth to me, I felt so goddamn relieved because then I didn't have to feel like a jerk who didn't love her own father enough. Instead, I was just observant as a very young child. But here's the thing. A lifetime of guarding this secret because I thought it would hurt my father and my mother because of her shame means that when they finally did tell me, I felt such an urgent need to be okay with this information. It felt so important to me to protect my parents from whatever I might be feeling about the situation and how that would wound them that I actually just buried it all. This likely tells you a lot about my upbringing outside of this issue and my own temperament. But I share this because if my parents had understood this, they could have helped me. They would have carved out a space for the feelings I was refusing to admit to them out of some misguided attempt to protect them. But they had no idea. They were just following my lead. It took me another six years to even admit that this was kind of a shitty baggage and I had feelings about it. Also, tell her right away. She may already know and so feels like shit for knowing. And definitely, most important thing of all, tell her as a unified front, you and her adopted father. That's a really thoughtful letter and it uh, that 
that uh, really I think seems to connect with where the where the original letter writer was coming from. Carvel, um, what what is that? What did that letter mean to you? I think you were you were particularly eager that we should that we should air that one. Yeah, I mean, because I feel like that is. I think that parents a lot of times we just underestimate the extent to which kids are capable of layers of emotional. I don't want to say deception because that makes it sound nefarious. That's not the right word. But kids are kids are reading adult situations and trying to please adults and trying to like do stuff. And there's all these different layers to how kids are doing stuff. Even when we think that we see everything that's happening, there's a lot that we don't see. And I think that this that this letter writer who prob- who clearly has gone who's like dealt with these feelings and revisited them and probably worked them out in therapy has really great insight on all the stuff that goes on between children and parents and the ways in which children try to hide their feelings to protect their parents and just makes a really strong case for why the focus should be on giving a child space to have the feelings that are going to unfold over a long period of time and giving them opportunity to work through those feelings because you can't control them. I think a lot of our managing of information comes from a desire to control the way kids feel. And I think what this letter writer is saying is that not only can you not do that, it's also really damaging when you try because you just create these layers of deception for the kid. And I think that, and I will also say that my own experience, I mean, this is about to get like kind of personal, but I I had my own experience about my, my, my father's paternity and whether or not he was my real father. And it was a whole thing. And one of the things that happened when I was an adult and started like coming to new levels of understanding is that I realized, like this letter writer, that I had on some level known this the whole time, but I, because I was afraid of the implications of this clear, rather obvious fact, the implications on me, the implications on my father, the implications on my family, the implications on everything, I just buried it. And what happened was I developed then this habit of basically burying my own observations deep inside and and like i i basically like stunted a part of my intellectual growth like that kind of stunting and self-dishonesty became something of a habit and i started noticing as i was an adult that i had done that in other ways too this habit of like having a thought seeing an observation knowing something was screwy and then immediately going but i can't deal with this this isn't right so i need to shut it down and then shutting it down in order to protect the people around me that just that became a way that I dealt with the world in general, which led to other problems. So I firmly land in the camp in general that honesty is the best policy with kids, even kids that we think are too young to handle the truth. We have to find the appropriate language, but we but trying to hide important truths from kids is almost always, in my opinion as a parent, a problem. And the question isn't how do we keep them from finding out, but how do we appropriately tell them? Hmm. Well said. How did you, when you came to realize that about yourself, how is that something that you can stop doing? I don't, I mean, the brain is so weird. Like sometimes you, it's like you don't even know how things are all connected. You just, un, you just, it's like you pull one pin and then other pins just like fall out. Like I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like mm. I just, I just think I needed permission <laughs> to be honest. I think just like having permission to be honest about reality was something that I had to like gain in my adult life. And I know that that sounds like it's like being, I'm being general about something specific, but that's really as specifically as I can name it. Like I, I, it, it was like a process for me to like give myself permission to be honest about what I was seeing. Because I had gotten so used to seeing stuff and then immediately going, well, that's, 
I can't say that. That's crazy. Like mm. that will that will hurt people's feelings. And I could and I, I can sort of trace that back to like like one of my earliest instances of that is having this revelation about my paternity, about my father's like the extent to which he is or isn't my real father, and immediately shutting that feeling down because it would just be too inconvenient for everyone involved to truly explore it. So I think that I think that the way we recover from stuff as adults is that we give ourselves permission to be honest <laughs> first about who we are and what we're experiencing. And that in and of itself takes a long time. And then I, my experience is that things sort of fall into place after that. You know, you sort of like start going, oh, I actually don't want to be in this relationship or, oh, I actually really do want to do this with my career or, oh, you know, you just start real, you start seeing what it would mean to actually like be in touch with who you truly are. And then, people stop being as threatening to you because they're not, you know, you don't have to, you don't feel like you have to please them. And you just kind of gain some sense of self. All that stuff is at risk in these situations. Uh, and that's why I really advocate for honesty with kids because that's sort of the long-term kind of tumble domino effects of stuff like this when we're not truly honest with them. Yeah. And that's big stuff. Yeah. Okay, if you are a longtime listener to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, you are familiar with Catherine Goldstein. She's been a host and a guest on the show before. Um, she has a brand new podcast of her own out now. It's called The Double Shift. It's a podcast about a new generation of working mothers. Uh, Catherine, welcome back to the show. Congratulations. Uh, tell us about the podcast. Um, yeah, well, the the podcast is um, out uh, uh, starting February 11th, and we are doing real reporting from uh, – we're going to Lyon County, Nevada. We're going to Greensboro, North Carolina. And we're talking to mothers um, who are all are all very different. But what they have in common is they're really sort of challenging the status quo of what it means to be a working mother in America. Uh, that's cool. I've heard the first couple of episodes. Uh, they're really interesting. The first one is about uh, a woman named Louisa Rachel Solomon. Uh, we're going to hear a clip from that episode right now. There are some pretty powerful societal expectations that once you get pregnant, it's time to quote unquote, settle down and give up parts of your old life. Like in Louisa's case, touring with a punk rock band. People often didn't know I was pregnant until I took my bass off and then would be like, what the fuck, you know? And I mean, some people think it's like really cool. Some people would say you're such a hero. And I found that almost, it's very kind that people would say it, but I found it almost as off-putting as the people telling me I was like killing my baby by touring. Not quite as off-putting as that, but it's like, in either case, I felt like someone was making a oversized judgment of my actions as opposed to asking me like, how do you feel about this? Or or saying, like, that's really cool. Like, it means a lot to me to see a pregnant person on stage playing. I, I love that it meant something to people. But I was like, I'm not a hero. I'm doing what I want to do. Uh, how did you get to know Louisa Solomon? And, and what made you decide she would be a good person to profile on this show? So um, I was introduced to Louisa Solomon through a mutual friend. And what I love about her is that um, her take on what it means to be a, a working mother and a mother and a pregnant person is a lot about um, sh 
pushing away other people's expectations because all of those experiences have a lot to do with what other people think you should be doing. And so what I want the double shift to do is really challenge a lot of those expectations and assumptions and show people that there's a lot of different ways to be a working mother and to exist in the world. And some of those ways are not giving up who you are and creative fulfillment and continuing to want to tour with your punk rock band and not sort of casting who you are aside because you're a parent. And, you know, for me, um, a really big part of what the show is, is that it's not about parenting or kids. I think working mothers have identities and experiences that are totally independent from parenting. And I think too often that's pushed to the side and not addressed. And we need to sort of talk about that and report on that that experience more because being a working mother in America is a complicated, messy, um, sometimes ugly, sometimes beautiful experience that we we don't hear a lot about beyond parenting. Now, you're a working mother yourself, obviously. Is there anything that you learned in the course of making this show that changed the way you think about your own arrangements, your own career, your own parenthood? Well, I think that, you know, so for the last two years, um, I have been researching and reporting on being a working mother. Or I've been I've been a working mother for three and a half years, and I've been looking at it from a journalistic angle um, for the last two years. And Definitely what I've concluded is that being a working mother in America is super fucked up and that actually (laughs) um, what (laughs) and that actually we need to be a lot more vocal about what's wrong with it and look for new solutions. And so one of the ways that I've sort of internalized this is that. I think one of the things that make being working a mother so difficult is that we are living in this culture of increasingly outrageous parenting expectations. And I think like this show does a great job of sort of putting some of those into perspective. But I think a lot of mothers spend a lot of time feeling guilty. And I hear a lot from mothers about guilt, but I'm much more interested in talking to mothers about anger and igniting what I think people can be angry about and what should change about being a working mother and not sort of retreating and withdrawing and feeling guilty all the time. Because being a working mother is really hard and there are things that we need to change in terms of workplaces, in terms of policy, in terms of how we think about ourselves and talk about ourselves, and definitely not to feel like we're doing something wrong all the time. Now, Catherine, I I hope you don't mind my pulling the curtain back on this a little bit. One of the reasons I was excited to have you on this show was because you and I talked a long time ago, like a few months ago, maybe even like a year ago, about this project. And you were like having a hard time getting people to think this would be something people would want to listen to at the time. And I remember that was like part of the gist of our conversation was me saying like, no, these are just like stories about people. And this is a lens of a huge swath of the American population, the American working population. Like, I want to listen to this. Like, everybody I know who is, like, you know, been a parent and been to work, like, I, these are, this is the story that I really feel and think about every single day of my working life. Um, and I'm curious, like, was that frustrating for you? And then how did you end up getting this thing made? Because obviously it's something that's worth listening to. It's really good. Well, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, (laughs) the process of creating, pitching the show and creating the show has been a further tour um, through like the sexist assumptions of the world in which we live. Um, But what's what was really interesting is that um, I really have had I've been working on bringing the show to life for over a year. And um, the vision that I had was that working mothers are not 
you know, a sad, depressing group of people that just tell the same stories over and over and complain about work-life balance, which I think is a really um, unfair stereotype that people have about working mothers, but that actually were really cool and really interesting. And there's so many stories that have never been really explored in podcasts or explored journalistically. And I definitely had a hard time getting people to understand what the show would be because, first of all, people couldn't really understand that there could be a podcast that could be about working mothers that weren't that wasn't about parenting and kids like people there was a big disconnect there and then i think also i think that there's still like some very long held assumptions that anything about mothers is light and fluffy or it's not serious or it's it's not something that should be given like journalistic resources or um you know treated with uh you know, intellectual rigor, like you would so many other kinds of economic and social topics and public policy, all that stuff goes into motherhood. And I think can be conveyed and really through really compelling stories, but we're not, you know, people don't necessarily give motherhood that kind of platform. So um, I definitely faced plenty of people who didn't get what was interesting or compelling or exciting about this show. But basically how I got it made was that I sort of circumvented some of the traditional media roots and raised money through foundation grants. <laughs> and um, so this this show is funded through um, some foundation grants, including the Ford Foundation. And I'm um, being distributed by a new network that is um, celebrates underrepresented voices in podcasting called Critical Frequency. And I really feel like I have found sort of champions of this work. Hmm. I'm wondering, I mean, I, I loved the, that that thing that you said towards the end there about the fact that, you know, there there isn't um there isn't anything else like this that talks about uh any parenting group without being about the act of parenting. Uh, and I think that's, I mean, I don't, I mean, there's so much that talks about men without talking about men as parents, but there isn't a whole lot that talks about moms without talking about moms as parents. And, and, and there's not a thing that and there's not um, there's this kind of missing piece of what it means for people to navigate a life while parenting as opposed to navigating parenting, period. And that makes me think about what the potential impact of this is as you as you feel it. I, this thing about exploring not what's difficult, but what makes people angry, which is maybe another way of saying what makes people motivated. I'm wondering if you see this as a pathway toward helping influence policy the way these the way issues that impact parents and moms in particular are discussed on a larger political sort of policy scale, especially as we go into an election. Is that something you were thinking about from the beginning? Or was it more just like, I want to get these stories out there and then we'll see what happens? I mean, that is absolutely a dream uh, future vision for the show, because what I've felt from the very beginning is that this could be more than a podcast, that this could be a movement in terms of getting women and mothers and other people together to think about these issues in a new way. And I really think that reporting and storytelling is the, one of the most powerful ways to bring people together. So like for our um, our next episode, we're going to a 24-hour daycare 
in over, 24 hour overnight daycare in Las Vegas that caters mainly to mm. single mother shift workers. And those are people when you, right. we talk about childcare, you don't hear a lot about them. Um, they aren't the people who are, you know, writing personal essays or who get the loudest voices in the room. And so I think like if we, we can come together and learn from each other and see so much of what we have in common as mothers and thinking about thinking about policies in a much more inclusive and, and intersectional way. That's absolutely like a top vision for what I think the show can be. But people don't want to be preached at. So every single episode has a very compelling character, is very storytelling driven. And I think that I hope that will just inject a lot of new and fresh energy into the conversation around what it means to be a working mother. I think that what you're pointing to is something that I think about all the time, and it's the way that I feel when I read articles about Nancy Pelosi and her experience as a mother. And when I, you know, I'm out at a restaurant and you have somebody who's a server who's pregnant and everybody at every table just feels like compelled to point that out or say something that they believe is kind. And it's what I thought when I was pregnant and also doing other things in the world and that it's like... And I still feel to this day as a mother of teenagers, like being a parent might literally be the least interesting thing about me. It's the thing I have in common (laughs) with billions of people. (laughs) And yet (laughs) when it comes to women, it does seem to be the first thing that, you know, we wear our pregnancy on the outside. We, you know, have kids. Parenting is hard. People seem to want to believe it is our defining characteristic when it is literally the least unique and interesting thing about all of us. I I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and I think that um, th- this is definitely just an important part of, you know, not pigeonholing mothers into one thing and really letting our full mm-hmm. experiences and our full humanity like be on display as part of storytelling and, um, you know, making sure those voices are heard because I just don't feel like those stories are heard. And so that's why I'm I'm so amped for the double shift where, you know, we followed along with a candidate who had three little kids as she ran for state office. We talked to sex workers in legal brothels about what it's like to be a working mom when you're a sex worker. I feel like we're, we're going to be injecting the conversation with a lot of new ideas. And I think all the characters are super relatable, even if um, their life experiences is different from from the listener. I love it. <laughs> I think it's so great. I really, I really loved the episode that we heard. I just wanted to say that. Like, I mean, at least the episode I heard, I just, I just really loved it. So, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, Catherine. Um, and uh, listeners out there, you can find the Double Shift on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Search for the Double Shift. Um, Catherine Goldstein, thanks so much for talking to us. It's great to be on the show. We talk a lot on this show about the negative side of parenting. We talk about failures. We talk about worries. We talk about the challenges. Um, We thought, wouldn't it be great if there were a segment in the show where we talk about things that we've found that we want to bring to your attention in a positive way? Uh, Hmm. And so we're going to do that now. It's a segment that we're calling um, stuff that we found that we want to bring to your attention in a positive way. Uh, Rebecca. I wonder if we can get a more concise name for that. Dude. I just, I, I it's, like it's, it. It's something to workshop. Let's, we, I we're mean, workshopping. Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll kick Working it around. Down. But I, for now, it's definitely going to be called uh, stuff that we want to bring to your attention in a positive way. Rebecca, um, do you ha- have you prepared something that you want to bring in a positive way to our listeners' attention? 
I do have something I'd like to perhaps recommend in a positive way to our listeners. No. Um, <laughs> this might be a repeat recommendation, but I'm going specific to some specific episodes, so I don't care. Uh, my friends and colleagues at my day job, New Hampshire Public Radio, make an amazing podcast called Civics 101. It is a 101 course on the basics of our democracy, and the hosts, Nick and Hannah, are super awesome. And the podcast has sort of shifted editorial focus in the last couple of years. It's become much more geared toward uh, kids and classrooms. And the episodes are super compelling, very narratively driven, very sound rich. They just finished a series that this is what I'm recommending specifically that I love on founding documents, the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution and the Federalist Papers. And this is like a sophisticated, fun to listen to schoolhouse rock that you can listen to with your kids in the car. You can listen to by yourself. A ton of adults listen to it and also love it. And the best part is, for me anyway, that the Civics 101 website, which I don't have anything to do with, I just love this, is that they have these downloadable course materials that teachers can use or that like parents can use if they have kids who are interested in these civics topics. They have quizzes, like, you know, basic democracy stuff. It's really fun. And I really recommend checking it out. It's called Civics 101. And you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do, my friends Nick and Hannah will thank you. And they are awesome. And you should listen to their work. Nice. Um, the thing that I want to to bring to your attention in a positive way, um, over the weekend when we went away on this trip, we um, uh, we stopped on the way back. We went to a bowling alley, which was super fun. Um, and I'm sure bowling has already come to your attention as a fun activity to do with your kids. Um, but in this bowling alley, they also had uh, an arcade. And of course, the kids were really excited about the arcade. So we went in there and they played a bunch of video games. Uh, and we found one game that I really strongly want to bring to your attention in a positive way. Um, it was a it's an air hockey game. You know, air hockey. And of course, air hockey is one of the great amusement games, the way the puck just sort of floats across the table in that graceful way. It's very good for like kids and adults. Everyone can understand the physics of like how the thing like bounces off the wall and into your goal. It's so fun. But so we found one that was Pac-Man themed and we were like, okay, cool. A Pac-Man themed air hockey table. And we started playing air hockey. Uh, and then the thing about this Pac-Man air hockey table, which is called Pac-Man smash is that once you score the first goal with the puck, all of a sudden, dozens and dozens of smaller pucks rain onto the table and there's millions of little pucks all flying around and you can just bam, 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 bam. And 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 there's much less skill involved and much more just like whacking the things around. And it's perfect for kids and really super fun. I've looked it up. It's called Pac-Man Smash. Uh, you can buy one online for what looks like $12,000. So I'm not sure that oh, that's sweet. something that I'm going to bring to your attention in a positive way. Uh, but I do think when you go to an arcade or a bowling alley or a place like that, look out for a Pac-Man smash table uh, because Pac-Man smash air hockey is super fun. That sounds awesome. Awesome. $12,000. Basically one episode for us. A mere $12,000. Carvel, anything anything that you would like, et cetera. I'm not recommending anything, but I am going to bring something positive to your attention. And that is the book Hold Still by Nina LaCour. Lacour, L-A-C-O-U-R, Lacour. Um, it uh, it was this is recommended to me by a friend of George's, and it is a YA fiction that deals with suicide. It's kind of like um, it's a little bit like Thirteen Reasons Why, um, in the sense that it's about uh, a, a teenager trying to make sense of life after a kid's suicide. So it's probably for ages. 
12 and 13 and up. It doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of sexual themes, but it does have some emotional stuff. Um, but it's a it's an epistolary written in the form of the journal of the kid who tries to find her way. Um, and she kind of learns that friendship continues, that love continues, that life continues and finds her way back into understanding what the reasons are and accepting things that she can't understand. And uh, it comes to me recommended from kids who have read it. It's Hold Still by Nina LaCour. And uh, that's my rec- that's my thing I'd like to draw positively to your attention. <laughs> nice. Look out for us to draw some more things to your attention in a positive way on the next episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate Parenting Podcast. And that's our show. Um, Slate Plus members, stick around to hear us talk more about whether the Pina Colada song is the hill that Rebecca wants to die on. Uh, (laughs) Find out what hill Carvel and I would choose to die on and, and whether it's also a 70s soft rock jam. It probably is. Uh, If you have a question for us that you want us to talk about on the show, you can call us and leave a voicemail. The number is 424-255-7833. Or you can send us an electronic mail message uh, at the address momanddad at slate.com. Tell us what you thought of the show on our Facebook group. Go to Facebook, search for Slate Parenting. Lots of great discussion there this week, especially I feel like the caliber of discussion on the Slate Parenting Facebook group was extraordinarily high. Do not miss it. Uh, Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch for Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie. I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week. This week on Slate Plus. The kids did get called in to the office to talk about the, to discuss the content on their podcast and whether or not they should be discussing things like the politics of the school budget situation, whether or not they should be interviewing other kids on campus, whether or not they should be expressing their opinions about these things. And that got back to me, and I was like, please, God, <laughs> let some administrator call me and, and fill me in on what they perceive to be this problematic situation. Please, please let them hear that my son is producing this thing. Please let them loop me in because this is a hill I would die on. If you want to hear that segment, go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus and join Slate Plus today.